From the hills of central New York and the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Russ. My guest on this episode is Josh Lewis, a partner at Gratterville and Hertzing Management Group, specializing in golf course construction project management. Josh is a native Oregonian and a proud grad of Oregon State University and one of the great measures of the success of our mutual mentor, Tom Cook. Josh has spent his entire professional life around golf from Bandon Dunes to the U.S. Open at Chambers Bay and then a stint as a golf course superintendent in Northern California before assuming his current role as partner with Gretaville and Hertzing. Josh and I had the chance to chat about the many talents golf course superintendents have to have or are expected to have. Certainly managing a spray application program is among the most critical. And with technology changing so rapidly, having a partner such as Frost Spray Technologies that specializes in application technology is a key. The expertise at Frost Spray Technologies from setting up a new GPS sprayer, considering drone applications, or just the nuts and bolts of nozzles, pumps, and controllers. Frost Spray Technology is your relationship. Reliable source. Learn more about all that Frost offers at frostserve.com. That's frostserv.com. Hey, Josh, welcome to Frankly Speaking. Appreciate you taking the time to have a chat to let everybody get to know you a little bit. You have emerged uh, very much as a voice uh, in the Pacific Northwest, and I believe probably now a national voice with your work in your current position. So let's start right at the beginning, Josh. You know, I have a great fondness for the state of Oregon, and I know you're an OSU grad. Are you a native Oregonian? I am, proudly. Proudly. And now, where from in Oregon? Uh, originally born and raised in Coos Bay, which uh, wow. for reference is about half an hour north of Bandon Dunes on the coast. Okay, which up until Bandon Dunes was created was a uh, rural area not much known for much about golf, right? No. Yeah, very isolated, two hours to a Costco kind of thing. Yeah, I can remember my first trip back in the days of the Northwest Turf Association coming down to Bandon and speaking it was fly into Portland and get in the car and drive. And I think that's when I originally began to fall in love with the state. It is absolutely gorgeous ride down from Portland to Bandon Dunes. But you didn't start there. You started at Eugene Country Club, huh? Well, actually, I started at the little private club there in Coos Bay, which was then Coos Country Club. Changed names a couple of times now, but like probably 90% of this industry needed a way to pay for golf. So hence, uh, you know, summer job, all that other stuff. And then that was right about the same time the original Bandon Dunes course was under construction. I was just getting kind of my feet wet uh, there at the local club. And then my dad was actually in uh, vertical construction, concrete construction. And so he was involved in the construction of the clubhouse and a lot of the initial infrastructure on the property. So we made several visits down there and that kind of lit the fire for me. So about two or three years into working there at that local club, I, I jumped down to Bandon and jumped in on kind of the growth phase of the resort. Ended up at Eugene as a, I guess would be an internship during my time at Oregon State shortly after uh, my time at Bandon. So you were there during the construction of the original uh, Bandon Dunes course. Who, who did the first one? So David McClay Kidd did the first one. 
I came in basically right as Pacific Dunes was opening. Uh -huh. And so it was a couple years after the original Band of Dunes course, but we were doing, you know, some edits, some revisions, first couple of years of play. You know, there's always little tweaks here, things that may or may not work perfectly. So so Doak had already been done. Mm -hmm. Ken Neese, who's been there from the very beginning, correct? Yeah, Ken was there. And Eric was there. Eric was there. Troy Russell was there then. Yep. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, that was an all star crew you had. Yeah, it's the OG list coming yeah. out now. <laughs> the old guy list. Yeah. So you were there <laughs> prior to your time uh, at Oregon State or during your time at Oregon State? So I went there prior to Oregon State. Mr. Kaiser had set up a tuition waiver grant through the local community college to help get folks, you know, kind of up to speed educationally and develop a team from within because of the isolation of the resort. There's a finite number of employee base available. So I went there and immediately started going to school part-time, working full-time with the goal and plan of transferring to Oregon State and finishing. And that just kind of got promoted, being that literally every manager there at that time had gone through Tom's program. Right. Okay. So Tom Cook, who has influenced many people I know, one in particular, Michael Woods, who I, mm -hmm. I worked with uh, very closely. And I know there's quite a gang of beavers uh, that are out there. And I, I'm happy to say the program is still looks really strong, certainly from a research perspective and the new teaching stuff uh, going on with the, I think it's called the PACE program. But I want to talk a little bit about growing grass out there because you had a front row seat <laughs> to them trying fescue and then seeing the challenges with it. I actually haven't been out in a really long time to know what kinds of surfaces they have out there now, but having been trained by Tom Cook, I'm sure you knew uh, that was a place annual bluegrass wanted to grow. What were those early years like confronting the challenges? You know, the place had been built. It still was pretty young. That was probably part of the discussion, and you weren't really a trained turf person yet. You must have been looking at these surfaces saying, boy, these things are wanting to be annual bluegrass pretty quick. Yeah, I think, you know, it was funny because Tom was always very close to that property, mostly because he was always really close to his students, you mm -hmm. know, and he's he one of the best things about Tom is he always stays close to his students. You know, those are his measures of success, he mm -hmm. always says. So hmm. he was always very integrated in what was going on down there and would always kind of give Ken and Troy a bunch of grief because he's like, you know, those putting greens are just going to be POA. And, you know, no matter what, we tried to fight it. And we did, you know, all the surfaces were originally planted to find fescue in keeping with kind of the old Lynx traditions. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, since have kind of climaxed to a combination of Poanua, some bent grasses that are in there, mm -hmm. and still some fine fescues. But mm -hmm. the treatment of the golf course and the playability is what's remained a constant. You know, firm, fast, ground game, you know, smooth surfaces, things like that. So I think the philosophy has kind of gone towards, you know, and again, I'm not ultra close to it anymore. I still stay in touch with everybody, but, you know, the philosophy has changed now to more or less what's been done in Scotland and England. And it doesn't really matter what the grass is as That's long correct. as it plays right. That's right. And why fight a grass uh, that wants to grow there? And I know exactly what you mean about Tom, especially when there was a situation and maybe you recall it when a company came into that area from Australia 
and started to talk about this very interesting way of producing bentgrass surfaces with, uh, you know, very low nitrogen and, and, and high amounts of growth regulators and lots of sulfate-based fertilizers. And I, I honestly think it was one of the first times I ever saw Tom get aggravated publicly and privately with his students uh, who were trying this <laughs> practice and failing uh, miserable at it uh, as anthracnose and other things came in to, you know, see these longtime pure POA surfaces start to decline and, and not transition effectively to bentgrass. When you would sit around with Tom and have these conversations when he was close there, I'm sure he was trying to bring across the point he taught you guys in school that ecologically, you know, annual bluegrass wants to grow there. And of course, as a native of Coos Bay, I'm sure working on the golf courses down there, those were annual bluegrass surfaces. What were those conversations like uh, sitting around with Tom talking about it? I'm sure he wasn't matter of fact, knowing Tom, he went into a little (laughs) bit of the science. Yeah. His philosophy on things and you know, I guess that touches a little bit on his and I's specific relationship. I, I got to spend a lot of time with Tom. I was a little older student when I transferred. And so, you know, my family was staying in Coos Bay and I was in Corvallis and commuting back and forth. So I spent a lot of time in Tom's office, just letting him talk me off the ledge, you know, personally. (laughs) And so we had a lot of really interesting conversations about stuff like this. And, you know, his thing, he was the ultimate, is the ultimate sustainability champion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And POA gets kind of a bad rap as it requires more water, requires more fungicides, whatever else. It does. But his foundational principle was right grass in the right place. Right. And in the Pacific Northwest, especially west of the mountains, there's no better growing environment for great POA than that climate. And so why fight it? You know, mm-hmm. places like Eugene Country Club, places like you know Royal Oaks, going up into the Seattle area, Broadmoor, Tacoma Country and Golf Club. Those are some of the best greens you're going to see, period, end of discussion, regardless of grass type. So right grass, right place, who really cares what turf type it is, as long as it plays right. And then, you know, conversely, he would say, you know, east of the Cascade Mountains and the high desert climates in Bend, that's one of the best bent grass climates in the world. Exactly right. So plant bent grass there, you know, and things like that. So it was foundationally, we all kind of got that beaten into us of right grass, right place, and then we'd bring up the transition zone and he'd go, just don't go work there because <laughs> there is no good, there is no right grass. Okay. So this is very interesting. You finish up your degree. Uh, I'm assuming it was a brief stint as an assistant at Pasatiempo uh, in 2011 before you joined Eric at Chambers Bay as the superintendent up there. Yeah. So Eric, I got there probably five or six months before Eric but he, I mean, effectively, we we started at the same time, you know, transitionally, kind of before the U.S. Open, trying to get things pointed in the right direction. I think I was there, I got there in 2011. So it's been a couple of years at Pasa Tiempo, kind of the very final stages of Tom Doak's renovation there, restoration there, original restoration, him and Jim Urbina. Uh, we put in a, a new irrigation system and did a, a about 27 acres in native grasses, hmm. finished up a, a couple final bunkers, some grassing lines, things like that. Pretty Most of it was pretty much done when we got there, the non-infrastructural stuff. And then after two years there, had an opportunity to go to Chambers and between Bandon and Eugene had a pretty strong relationship with the USGA already had hosted several USGA championships while at Bandon. And then mm-hmm. the U S women's am at, at Eugene 
when I was there. And so it was kind of a natural fit, I thought, at that point in my life and career. And it got me back working in Lynx Golf, which I have a passion for, obviously. Yeah. So. And and it seems like you didn't fall far from the tree. Your, your dad maybe was in upright construction. You you seem to have been attracted to lateral construction, so to speak, <laughs> or landscape construction, golf course construction. Was there an excitement about that that attracted you? Yeah, I think anybody that's hosted specifically U.S. Opens, there's a lot of infrastructural things that have to take place. There's usually decent amount of construction that leads up to the championship and preparation. And so it wasn't necessarily the attraction. It's just it feels like everywhere I've ever been, I've been building golf. And so it's just the way life has worked out. And it's been great. I wouldn't trade it. All right. Well, listen, I'm with Josh Lewis. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back after a message. As Josh mentions, knowledge and expertise with water management is growing more critical each year with the changing climate. I've seen more superintendents turn to wetting agent tablets such as A-plus pellets from the plant food company at this time of year for more precise management of localized dry spots. Or they're going to application through the irrigation system with hydration AC fertigation for wall-to-wall treatment. Learn more about improving water management from your local plant food rep or at plantfoodco.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm with Josh Lewis. We are going to try to talk about Chambers Bay and the U.S. Open in the context of what Tom Cook was trying to teach you (laughs) about what wants to grow in certain places. And I saw it like many people did on television and heard like many people did the commentary and I think it was the first time Fox had taken over the U.S. Open and my good pal Gil Hance was on TV regularly during that. And I'm uh, I have you know the great joy of having his number so I can text him all kinds of stupid things while he's on the air. And I was trying to say, hey, this is what sustainable golf looks like up there. It's been dry. It's this. It's that. And certainly the conditions of the putting greens uh, dominated the story. Uh, Not to rehash something that, you know, might have been difficult for all of you guys. Although from my perspective, it was a beautiful property. And, you know, I think a very interesting championship. If I had any criticism, it was that little bit like L.A. recently, Josh, there were holes that spectators couldn't be around. So, sure. so that I, I just thought it's always better when you have a lot of people around the holes at these big championships, and it seemed like Chambers didn't allow some of that. What are your uh, fondest memories of that week? Oh, easily the people. So the team that we had there, you know, the full-time team that we had there on the golf course was easily the most talented group of folks that I've ever seen mm-hmm. in one place. It just... Mm-hmm phenomenal yeah second that and we had you know obviously we had our turf guys like every major has you know eight or ten of those guys they're now off being superintendents on their own and Mm -hmm. that was great but even the just the greenkeepers the guys in the shop the concentration of talent was just incredible Mm -hmm. passion for that golf course was incredible and then outside of that I've never had a relationship with golf shop staff and restaurant F&B staff and outside service staff like we had there. It was really was truly a family type of atmosphere. Was that a Kemper operation up there, Josh? It was. Okay. And I would credit Kemper with, with some of that, that culture. 
Okay. So you, I mean, it was, a, it's a Kemper operation for Mike and the Kaiser family down in Bandon. So that must've made it pretty comfortable. And I would say the Kemper operations I'm familiar with, especially Sand Valley up in Wisconsin, that is an enormously talented group of people, which had to make the criticism you guys were facing that much tougher because you have all these great people. And I know firsthand you're killing yourself during that, you know, the week before, the prep, and, you know, during, unless you guys didn't hear what everybody else was hearing about what was going on. Oh, anybody that says they don't hear it isn't telling you the truth. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the it's the world's biggest megaphone. I yeah, mean, that's right. So the reality there was, you know, and I, I have had this conversation with a lot of people, both publicly and privately, that I stand by what was done there. I stand by what we did. I think in a lot of cases, the world wasn't ready for what they saw. Hmm. And to your point, we had the hottest spring, driest spring in the last, I want to say 30 plus years. Yeah. It was 95 degrees two weeks before that, which is completely unheard of in the Northwest that time of year. Yeah. And it's a Lynx golf course. It's supposed to ebb and flow with the environmental conditions mm -hmm. and impacts. It's supposed mm -hmm. to present in a way that, you know, yeah, if it would have been raining, it would have been green. If it was hot, it was dry. If mm -hmm. it was, you know, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Are there things that in hindsight, the team, everybody, the USGA, the chambers based staff themselves would do differently? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There is with any tournament member guest all the way to a US Open, there's always going to be a retrospective and go, I liked what we did over here and I didn't like what we did over here. Mm. But the Chambers Bay US Open was a laundry list of firsts for the golf world. Yeah. You know, first in the Northwest, first on a, well, not the first, but like the second on a municipal property. Yeah, I was, uh, I was there for the first one at Beth Page. <laughs> right. And so yeah. that was a relatively new concept, you yeah. know, so we have, you go down the list, right? First, mm -hmm. the biggest first, in my opinion, was Fox. Yeah. And they admitted the struggles that they had with anything from filters on TV to trying to put baseball commentators in the booth to talk <laughs> golf. Like it's different. You know, you yeah. can be a hall of famer in one area and struggle in others. So right. there was a whole lot of firsts and it was a lot for the golf world to handle, you know, you referenced LACC this last weekend, beautiful golf course, phenomenal club, outstanding team, all the history in the world. Yeah. And they got beat up for some things. And yeah. it's like, look, it's a first time. I was telling somebody this the other day. I said, anytime there's the, the first time a place hosts something like the U S open, people are going to criticize you know, oh, because they haven't seen it. They wouldn't open their mouth if it was Oakmont or Pebble or whatever, but those places have hosted them for decades, you know, so they've worked a lot of those kinks out. But yeah, Chambers was just a, it was a lot of firsts for golf. And one person in particular that I have a lot of respect for said it kind of best. He said, you know, you guys did a great job and nobody is going to appreciate this mm -hmm. until probably 15 to 20 years from now. Yeah. When golf has really gone that far, you know, and forced the industry down these sustainability paths, mm. you nailed it. It was just 15 years too early. I agree. Now, over time, Eric is still there and doing a bang up job. I've, I've not mm -hmm. visited that property. I think I'm getting up there this summer 
but I, I believe they've changed the grasses on the greens there, haven't they? Yep. Yeah, they went ahead. I mean, you know, and, and as was seen during the Open, there was there was some POA in the greens, not as much as people thought. You know, and most, most of the greens were below 10%. There were a handful between 10 and 15%, but there wasn't as much POA as people remembered or referenced. Mm. But at that point, Bandon was really going through their transition period. And it's tough to transition from fescue to POA. There's some bumps in the road, you know, and so Chambers, you know, really wanting to continue to build that USGA foundation, that championship pedigree, they pulled the trigger and said, we're just going to sod these greens to POA annua. And so they did that three years ago, three or four years ago now. Yeah. And I'm sure Eric and the team took a collective sigh of relief because again, I mean, that's the grass that wants to grow there. Absolutely. And there's access to great POA sod out of British Columbia with Boss mm-hmm. Sod. They grow POA annua sod on sand up there. So it was a doable thing. You know, it's not necessarily doable for a lot of folks. No. And, you know, I would imagine in those early transition years, right, any green, and this is something I learned from Tom, if you do nothing in places where annual bluegrass can invade, and, and let's say, you know, where I am in the Northeast, you play golf in March, April, and May when the bentgrass uh, isn't going yet. Uh, and you disturb that area and you don't take any chemical intervention or you don't try any nutritional things or you don't try to water differently, a, a brand new bentgrass green will transition within five to seven years to at least 50 to 60 percent POA. Those early years are painful. We had a lot of uh, renovations that have happened over the years uh, back east. Sometimes in response to winter damage, the bentgrass comes in and people haven't grown bentgrass, pure bentgrass uh, before. And the early years when the ballmark POA starts to show up, the real ratty winter annual, the, the coarse one, the one with, yeah. that flowers prolifically moves in, seemed like that's what was happening right before our eyes. E- even though it's not very much, as you say, at Chambers Bay, it's enough to probably disrupt things. And by the time the Open was there, there was really nothing you could do about it at that stage of the game. And it looked like there was some deflection going on with the ball. And there really wasn't much you guys could do at that stage, was there? No. And that's, I mean, that's just it. The POA that everybody hates is that annual biotype with the seed heads and the stringy kind of, you know, once it's that nice tight perennial Oakmont POA or whatever, mm-hmm. that's what everybody loves putting on. So it's that transitional period and getting that POA annual to go from the annual biotype to those perennial types. But that can be really challenging. Yeah. When it's early in that stage, just like we were dealing with, just like Bandon's dealt with, that's the worst case scenario. Then you add to that the environmental stresses that we had that spring and that POA that already is trying to seed as an annual biotype, you throw 95 degrees at it whenever the average temp is 68 and it really goes into reproductive mode. And so I hate the cliche term of perfect storm, but there was a lot of perfect storm scenarios around the prep for that the last month or so. Yeah, no doubt. So in, it looks like 2015, after a, a great run, then you take some superintendent's jobs in, in Northern California, Almaden Golf and Country Club, uh, and then Sharon Heights. How was it to leave that place and then go into the private country club world? Well, I've always been big on, on relationships, long-term relationships. And so I've usually thrived in the private club side of things, just as, you know, the relationship building side of things is so important there. I've always enjoyed that. Between that and needing a, a reset, 
you know, not necessarily from an industry perspective, but more from a family perspective. Mm -hmm. My wife has been incredible and followed me all over the Western US as I've built a career. And, mm -hmm. you know, the US Open was kind of the crowning achievement or whatever, I, silly term, but it was kind of the highlight that we've been chasing. And so we got done and I just asked her, I said, where do you want to live? And I said, I'll, I'll find a job, you know, somewhere. Yeah. And she said, well, I really liked living in Santa Cruz. And I said, you and everyone else. <laughs> so, you know, it happened to be that, you know, Almaden was posted and it's a wonderful neighborhood club um, in the San Jose kind of foothills against the Santa Cruz mountains. Yeah. And it's yeah. a phenomenal family membership. And, you know, they'd been through a rough patch with the drought had a long time retiring superintendent. And so I interviewed for that and ended up getting the job and was a great place to go after the US Open and just remember why I love growing grass yeah. and building a team and turning something around and, you know, helping that club come out of the drought was really rewarding. And also a very different experience, right? Although you had that dry condition up there at Chambers Bay that one year. I, uh, unfortunately, as you know, as an Oregonian, uh, dry, warm things are not going away up there. Uh, they've, they've just experienced a very, very dry month of May. Uh, I was in town all the way down to Eugene just last week, and uh, it's been pretty dry. They had some rain early, and I think the changing climate, uh, we saw the heat dome a couple of years ago, it's already yeah. been 90 degrees for a few days up there. So must have been an interesting challenge to go down to a place where dry weather and droughty conditions were and are still the norm. From there to Sharon Heights, those places have struggled with the dry conditions and finding water, good water to use. Is it still an issue up there or has Northern California been a little bit immune from it? Well, so when I've changed jobs, I've always looked for positions that I'm going to learn something I'm not very good at. Hmm. And so one of the things, you know, I had a background of growing fine turf on sandy soils and I'm like, hmm. that's not very challenging, you know, but so <laughs> one of the things I got to do at Almaden was, is go in and grow cool season turf in a warm season environment on clay with Ooh. bad water. Oh, and so, <laughs> you know, tough soils and tough water, that's a tricky situation. So I was not, I wouldn't consider myself really strong in soils at that point. And so I got to go there and really dive in on that, you know, and understand how, you know, salt management and high bicarbonates impact turf and fertility. And that is the foundational skill set of a Northern California turf manager. Yeah. We're not up until here recently, most guys were still growing cool season grass. And I would still say the majority of them do on heavy soils and typically poor water quality, you mm -hmm. know, in the, a lot of transition into, you know, recycled water, very few golf courses are putting city water out anymore, which actually comes with its own set of challenges. Yeah being snowmelt out of the Sierra, it's almost too clean and will strip yeah. nutrients. Mm -hmm. So both at Almaden, got the crash course, bad well water, limited water resources with the drought, bad clay, cool season grass, which really prepared me for going to Sharon Heights where they had a project in the works to actually build and bring online their own recycled water facility. Okay. And so they spent between themselves, the state grants and things like that in the neighborhood of $22 million to build their own recycled water facility, which they have partnered with the local sanitary district to operate. This is great. And when I was interviewing for that job, that was the big draw for me is I believe 
100% that at least in the West, recycled water is going to be a mandate for golf at some point in the future. And so to be able to go in and be thrown into the middle of a project like that, that's a huge capital project, you know, that political partnership between public and private, negotiating those contracts, getting that golf course permitted and compliant to apply the recycled water, all while COVID's going on, which was a whole nother thing. (laughs) But that was a really interesting challenge to me and something that I feel is a foundational skill set that you know, no matter where you're in, if you're involved in turf or horticulture at this point in California, you better know recycled water. No doubt. Let's take one more break. I'm with Josh Lewis. I'm Frank Grassi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back after this message. As an often neglected aspect of sustainable golf management, the amount of sand required for course maintenance is becoming alarming. There's growing concern that our current path is creating cost challenges. So why not strive to get the most from your sand application by aerating, top dressing, and amending in one pass with DryJack services? Application of sand using DryJack services allows the greatest retention of sand and integrating into a variety of depths, regardless if the sand is wet or dry. DryJack Services offers a sustainable approach to using the sand you need. Contact your local DryJack representative or for more information, visit dryjack.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi. I'm with Josh Lewis. Josh is a partner at Gratterville and Hertzing Management Group now. You make the transition. Uh, it sounds like had an excellent learning experience at Sharon Heights bringing a recycled water plant on. And I really appreciate how you talked about that public-private partnership. Uh, I'm watching uh, Will Benson do this at Laurelwood there in Eugene, where he's working with the city of Eugene to run this beautiful little nine-hole joint that I think you probably mm-hmm might even remember as something they used to call Laurel Weed and and uh, him and his little Chihuahua Sandy and all those wonderful people working with him out there are really to me a demonstration of how golf can really bring out the best in a community and it sounds like that use of that water for Sharon Heights. And I agree with you wholeheartedly that this is the the reality. I also think we're going to have to get by with even less water, even if it's recycled, because obviously you got to have fresh water to recycle it. So just less water in general. So you're at Sharon Heights. Did you anticipate leaving being a golf course superintendent and taking on your current role. Talk a little bit about how that transpired. Short answer is no, I did not (laughs) anticipate that. I think one of my things is I've always been or tried to be thoughtful about the industry and our profession and more than anything, the leaders of our industry, you know, the superintendent community and COVID was really hard, especially in the Bay area. Yeah. And I think, you know, between the Bay area and and New York city, you know, we can talk about it a little differently than some. That's exactly right. I agree with you a hundred percent. I hear, I traveled out to Arizona many times during the pandemic and (laughs) I, I, I swear it wasn't going on in Arizona, but much like San Francisco, uh, you know, we had bodies piling up uh, in New York. It was a reality for people I knew. Uh, we were scared. Yeah. And I think with a lot of unknown things, a lot of cities have not recovered well. I mean, Portland, for example, is really struggling still, I think, with the homeless population and a lot of other things that have happened in cities, much like San Francisco. Was was that a little bit of motivation to, to get out of there for a little while? Yeah, it was... 
it was more thought provoking than anything else. I think it wasn't about leaving the Bay Area as much as it was looking internally and trying to ask myself, what did my next 25 or 30 years in this industry look like? And was what I was feeling not dissimilar to what other superintendents were going through. Mm -hmm. And not only did we do the recycled water facility while we were there, but we also, you know, I was hired because of my construction background. The club knew that they were headed towards a pretty major renovation. And so, you know, my first week there, we interviewed architects and hired Todd Eckenrode ah. to guide them through a master plan. And my entire time there was around building the project that's now underway at that golf course, along with recycled water and, uh, litany of other things but you know you add all of those things and then you throw a global pandemic on top of it you start to question things that maybe you hadn't thought about in certain ways for the first 25 years of your career yeah and i started asking you know first my my inner circle right my close group how are you doing i don't care about your grass how are you doing yeah it's been a tough go right i'm sure you got a lot of tough answers to that question i did and you know then i started asking people that maybe weren't in my inner circle and it started to kind of click with me that everybody's struggling with the pressures of the industry, the pressures of the expectations they're under, yeah. not only at work, but at home, you know, because you're in this constant struggle between married to two mistresses kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you know, it's tough on people with young kids and golf was booming. The demands of the job yeah. were greater and... I think, as we've seen, it's been harder to get a workforce organized to be efficient with more golfers out there. So everything went in, felt like it went into hyperdrive and the stress at home also went into hyperdrive. And that was a lot. I can say firsthand many conversations with my inner circle, which includes Paul McCormick and Chris Trittabaugh, that it's been a tough go uh, emotionally, uh, spiritually, every way you can imagine so this caused a bit of a reflective time, huh, for you? Yeah, it did. And and I also started looking at, you know, what the superintendent position had become over the course of the last 10 or 15 years. I, I think most would say that the expectations, the job duties that have been placed on superintendents are far different than they were, you know, when we all got into this. Mm -hmm. You really, truly are an executive leader at your business now. Yeah. You know, you're expected to understand a lot of legal aspects. It hit me. I was sitting in a manager meeting and I'm sitting there talking to the executive chef about food costs and cogs and, you know, P&Ls. And I'm sitting here going, when did this happen? <laughs> when did I when, when did I start to be able to carry a conversation about food costs? You know, wait a minute. I, 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 just, I thought I was growing annual bluegrass out here. I thought I was exactly. Growing Tom didn't tell me about this. Like <laughs> So. You know, the job has changed and the expectations and the requirements have changed. And I think in a, in a lot of great ways, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And we are more respected as an industry. We're more respected at our clubs and our courses. But with that comes the burden of being able to deliver on those expectations. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I found myself and Sharon Heights is a great example. You know, you've got some of the most successful, most intelligent, hardest working type A folks in the world as members there, you know, Silicon Valley leaders, you know, you're just surrounded by them. You walk into a boardroom and it's like, yeah, I know you, I know you, I know yeah. you, I saw you in Forbes. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, you, you have to act that part and be able to carry yourself in that environment. And I learned a ton about business and how to handle myself in that role. But I started looking around and I went, you know, how do executives in business make it? They have to surround themselves with talent 
if they don't have the talent in-house, they have to outsource that talent. They have to outsource and find help and support. And those were the questions I started asking myself is, you know, okay, we have this issue with the industry. Guys are really stressed and spread thin. You know, they're compromising maybe their personal mental health, their personal physical health, their family's health, uh, relationships, whatever, to try to keep up at work. You know, how does an executive at a, another company do it? How does a CFO or a CEO of a Fortune 500, how do they handle it? You know, because that's really the parallel Yeah. now. Yeah, it I mean, is. And people will argue that, but at the top, especially the top clubs, the top, you know, we're director of agronomy, multi-course facilities. Correct. You're not growing grass anymore. No. And you can't hide. I think a lot of us got into this because, you know, we like sitting on a mower all day or being out there, you know, away from people. And now, honestly, if you want to be in those roles at those top clubs, you're exactly right. You have to be conversant in the business of golf the business of the operation, and also affable to the membership, regardless of how uh, demanding and occasionally uh, rude and, and disrespectful, uh, you know, they might be. So it, it is an interesting dilemma we find ourselves in, right? We wanted this, now we've got it. And yet I don't know that we're as well prepared for it because like you say, we don't come out of turf school knowing this stuff. No, and I think it's, again, I just started to evaluate you know, what does the industry need? I had a lot of, we've, we've struggled at turf school. We've struggled with, uh, you know, talented assistants leaving the business, talented superintendents leaving the business. What needs to happen? What needs to change? You know, we're not going to suddenly get this influx of new students coming into the industry. We're not going to suddenly get twice the budget to offset all this. What can we do to fix it? Be solution oriented, you know, and that's when when Robert Hertzing gave me a call and asked if I'd be interested in talking to them about this business that he and Pat had started. And we had been friends and had some similar conversations in the past. And, you know, he knew that I was kind of this divergent thinker, maybe. And he said, you know, I think we're kind of in alignment on where this industry might be headed and how we can fill in need and support superintendents, support the business. Okay. So he called you. Yeah. Yeah. After actually departing Sharon Heights, he called me and said, you know, hey, I know you're you're looking at options, you're weighing what you want to do next. And would you consider jumping in with us? And within about two weeks, I think I flew down to L.A. and played his club there at Lakeside with him and Pat and sat down for a great lunch and found that all three of us were kind of on the same page and had been seeing a lot of the same things mm -hmm. and, and wanted to form this partnership. Right. So talk a little bit about the management group now. What is the nature of this group and the things you specialize in? Obviously, you're a construction guy. And obviously, being in the role as a consultant, I can tell you relationships are everything. If you can't strike it up right at the start, you're going to have a tough time. So it sounds like all the strengths you've built are really coming to fruition. You know, you're being able to utilize them better now. Talk a little bit about the management group uh, and what you guys do. So at this point in the golf world, I mean, we've seen a pretty significant construction boom, uh, lots of renovation work, lots of... You know, not as many necessarily new golf courses being built, but a lot of infrastructural upgrades, new irrigation systems, you know, out West, it's a lot of regrassing, mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, Bermuda grass conversions and things mm -hmm. like that. And then just generally speaking, I think another big driver is a lot of the golf courses that were built in the late 90s, early 2000 golf boom, the average age of all that infrastructure is all coming due for replacement at the same time. Yeah. You know, concrete and irrigation systems yeah. being primary. So we have this construction boom. 
the business that we have, it really is our primary mission is to support superintendents in whatever way they need. If the club is tired of hearing all the right answers from that person, sometimes they need a fresh face, mm -hmm. probably not going to say anything different than their full-time turf professional is going to say. We might just be able to put a different spin on it, mm -hmm. you know, and come in and, and be that guy that's going to stand next to them. We've been in that position. We've been in that boardroom and, you know, we can speak that language, so to speak, and be there to just stand side by side, you know, mm -hmm. if there's agronomic challenges or, or construction projects, things like that. Our primary focus right now is project planning and management. So we're doing a lot of work with clubs up and down the West Coast on, you know, long range planning, helping sort out financial options, how they can put club dues to work, capital dues structures, help planning and long range financial metrics mm. to get to a project. Mm helping superintendents through the actual construction management side of things, you know, allows them to focus on their full-time job, which is managing the membership, managing a GM, mm -hmm. managing their staff, mm -hmm. the grow in, and we can be more focused on doing inventories of product, et cetera. So when you go in and I'm assuming now after a couple of years, or at least a year or so, year and a half or so, you've been to mm -hmm. a bunch of different clubs. I don't want to be negative or cast dispersions, but I'm always amazed at how poorly many clubs run. Now, maybe not the best clubs, but a lot of the clubs that you were, you know, mentioned are being were built in that period of time, you know, have been hanging on. And, and the pandemic in many ways was a boom to them. And now they've got a little bit of cash. But I wonder when you look, it seems like these clubs need help with these things. You know, you've got a general manager and maybe a golf pro and maybe a food and bev manager and a golf course superintendent, but not necessarily as well coordinated for the membership. You know, if they're not run by a, like a Troon or a Kemper, maybe not as well run. I'm wondering, have you noticed that a lot of clubs have needed some help in just organizing the way they approach not just projects, but the day-to-day -day operation now that things are getting better? Uh, short answer is yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> In most cases, especially with major projects, though, it really comes down to the fact that they've never done it before. Mm. So a lot of the leadership that's at the club, it could be 20 years, 25 years since they've done anything major capital investment-wise on the golf course. That leadership wasn't there. They've never done it before. A lot of those members weren't there. You know, it's not necessarily about not being well-run as it is. They just have never done it before. They don't have the experience. I think the other side of it is there are plenty of guys that have construction experience to some extent, but it's the time required mm. to do it at a high level, yeah. you know, and it's a full-time job yeah. to manage all the moving parts around a major construction. When you start talking about some of these projects that could be 15 to $30 million, there are serious ramifications for missteps in planning or contract negotiations. We missed a permit, yeah. you know, all of a sudden in California, you miss a permit that could be two years. Yeah. And things aren't getting less expensive. I mean, at the same time, no. golf has experienced a bit of a financial windfall because people are coming back and it looks like some of them are staying enough to stay to keep clubs healthy and looking at these projects. Irrigation projects that were $2 million a few years ago, Josh, look like they're $6 million, $8 million. Yeah. These things maybe even require clubs taking on debt 
this is a serious operation that needs, you know, very specific project management. I'm assuming that's your forte. That is exactly what we're doing. We have been called in to help, whether it's just answer questions or provide a sanity check or an extra set of eyes for agronomic stuff and operational stuff. But for the most part, superintendents are super talented. They know their golf courses better than anybody. The majority of what we're doing is deep into project work, be in those boots on the ground, checking trenches, working with the contractors, working with the architects. You almost have to be bilingual. You know, you have to be able to speak member and boardroom and GM, and you have to be able to speak contractor and architect, county supervisor, Mm -hmm. and, you know, the planning department and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so just being that cog, you know, that all the spokes can work around and a point of contact, take that time requirement off the superintendent and let them have a balanced lifestyle. You know, that was one of the things I I looked at in myself and that I always said, yes, I just said, yes, Yeah, sure. I can do that. Sure. Why not? Yeah. I'll take that on. Yeah. Yeah. At the detriment of myself and my family, because (laughs) there's a finite amount of hours in the day. Yeah. And it doesn't mean, you know, by, by bringing in a support group like us, you know, it doesn't mean that you're not capable. It doesn't mean that you're not able. It doesn't mean that you're not super talented and proficient at that. It means that you understand that exact thing, which is you only have so many hours in the day Yeah, and having a group that you can trust that's been in your shoes, that's superintendents yeah. for many decades yeah. that will work hand in hand with you and just be your other set of eyes. Yeah. I think that from the superintendent perspective, from the club side, it's about deferred liability. Yeah. And these projects have gotten so big. I mean, they're not building clubhouses without project managers. Yeah. General commercial construction firms are not building large buildings without project managers. I think it's one of those things that just needs to become more commonplace in our industry to where superintendents can surround themselves with the right support group to help offset you know, these increased expectations, these increased demands on time, things like that. And I think the three of us are really just heavily motivated in trying to be as supportive as we can. I I believe that superintendents are some of the best people in the the world. You know, they're just, they're just great. My best friends are superintendents, my closest confidants and people, you know, I've got superintendents in the world that know things about me that nobody else knows, (laughs) you know, good and bad. So it's like, I love that group of people. And no matter where you are in the world, you have an instant community. And, you know, our goal is really trying to see where the industry has come in the last 10 to 15 and where it's headed and trying to be that that trusted support group, so to speak. Yeah. Well, all that investment you made in valuing relationships and paying attention to the folks that were working with you along the way. It sounds like uh, you've got no regrets in your current role. And it sounds like a really exciting opportunity, Josh. And it sounds like it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. One of Tom's great measures of success. Let's call it that. Thanks for taking the time to join me. I really appreciate you, Josh. Thanks very much. Thank you, Frank. I appreciate it. Big thanks to Josh Lewis. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability. And Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Block Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.